0: Good morning, everyone. Why don't we get started? Uh, my name is Kristen Damiano. I'm the coordinating attorney for the Anti-Harassment Project here at the City Bar Justice Center, which is housed at the Bar Association. Welcome to jurisdiction and sexual harassment, where criminal administrative and regulatory remedies intersect. Sexual harassment, as we know, can take many different forms, many different settings. It's not always clear what remedies are available to a person under these circumstances. In addition to working at the anti-harassment project i work on the hotline we get calls about everything as you can imagine um i got a call recently from a young woman who was working in a restaurant her supervisor had asked her to borrow her phone so she could record a call that he was um excuse me record a meeting he was having with another supervisor and um she discovered upon getting her phone back that he had downloaded videos she had taken of herself that were fairly intimate in nature, and downloaded them onto his computer and shared them with his coworkers. Um, She was humiliated. She um, talked to her manager. Her manager didn't really respond. She talked to the corporate headquarters. They ended up um, suspending him without pay for three days, and then had all the managers do some pro forma sexual harassment training. Um, She was not satisfied with this response, and she quit. She hadn't been working there for very long, um, like maybe two months, and she quit. Um, You know, I work with discriminatory harassment, not sexual harassment. Sexual harassment is not my area of expertise. Um, So I'm really happy to have experts here today that we could talk to that can you know, I did advise her on what to do, but it's good to know what the experts would say too. So um, we are joined today by um, Jennifer Gaffney. Um excuse me. Um, ADA Jennifer Gaffney, um Councilmember Keith Power Powers, um House Fitch with um the New York City Commission on Human Rights and Electra York with the EEOC. I'm keeping my comments very brief because we all want to hear from the experts. So, um, and we are going to be passing out note cards. Is that right, Laura? We have no cards for your questions. We'll take questions at the end, please, and just um, we'll arrange for note cards to be brought up, um, and we'll ask, as many, we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Okay. So first, I would like to introduce um, Electra York with the EOC. She's all the way at the end. She is an enforcement manager at, their, at the New York District Office, and she has been responsible for overseeing enforcement activities, including intake, evaluation of charges, investigations, dismissals, cause findings, and conciliations. In addition, she has been active in research and training activities for public and private employers. Go ahead, Electra.
1: turn it on. Thank you. Uh, I want to start with some statistics which I find fairly astonishing. Um, These came about in the course of preparing a report which EEOC initiated two years ago on harassment in general, not specifically sexual harassment, but there was some current concern I guess uh, in Washington about the large number of harassment complaints and they assembled uh... some academics uh... statisticians a lot of survey work social sciences just to try to determine what are the workplace dynamics the interactions that lead to or permit harassment in the workplace uh... and they put together a massive report loaded with footnotes very very impressive from which one can learn a lot if you go through it slowly And, but what what struck me very strongly is the statistics on uh, sexual harassment that um, surfaced as a result of this report, Um, or, or as part of the report, I should say. Depending upon how you phrase the question, whether you say sexual harassment, unwanted sexual attention or coercion, or if you say sexually crude conduct or sexist comments, This is a survey of female employees, thousands of female employees in many industries and in public and private employment nationally. Um, Sexual harassment, 25% said yes. Unwanted sexual attention, 40% yes. Sexually crude conduct, 60% said yes. This is female employees in various Employment settings. Think of the percent. Think of what that means. I think it's astounding. Um, so then, what did they do about it? Uh, they complained, right? Wrong. They did not complain. Seventy um, percent of those those women did not even complain internally. Eighty-five percent did not file externally with state and local agencies. Uh, And I can confirm that with our agency, with the New York District Office, because the number of sexual harassment complaints, this, the first two quarters, our fiscal year starts October 1st, the first two quarters is the same as the year last year and the year before. So you would think, since our fiscal year starts at the beginning of October, which is the sort of the defining moment that what we're talking of, of what we're talking about here it has not risen. Um, why not? Um, what what uh, I don't I don't think I need to ask you. What do you think caused women not to file? Fear of retaliation, obviously, and obviously many faced it. Um, the reason that it, and other reasons they gave were humiliation ostracism reputational damage career damage inaction blame disbelief these are the when they did complain or when it was discussed these were the reactions that they encountered uh, as a result of the um, this report the, uh, our agency, EEOC, put together a training program not about sexual harassment, but about workplace in- interactions called Respect in the Workplace. And it starts with examining the cues of respect, the cues of incivility, and so forth. And um, only a, a limited part of it is about sexual harassment. Uh, and it was it was put together by a professional consultant and trainer, and it was launched. In the first week of October, uh, as you might imagine, given the Weinstein, you know, simultaneously practically with the Weinstein Affair, um, we were really overwhelmed with requests to um, perform this training for uh, for the private sector. And we did, and I and my and a colleague have been out doing a number of these trainings. And so there's a great deal of interest on the part of employers, which I think is interesting and and I hope we can tap into it. Not all employers are interested, and I'm rather cynical about whether whether large employers are really concerned about it, except for the bottom line. And the question is, what is the bottom line for an employer? What what would cause a large employer to say, you know, I think I really need to look into this? And that's not an easy question to answer. But the one thing that uh, they might care about is the effect on the, the employees who have been harassed, again, according to this survey, what, how did they respond? Uh, endure it. Ev- avoid the harasser. Downplay the gravity of it. Seek the support of friends and family. Quit. Now, this, this should get the attention of employers because this is, this is of concern Um, It means that there are psychological and physical effects of the victims, um, and and they cite depression, anger, anxiety, exhaustion, headache, nausea, job dissatisfaction, withdrawal, tardiness, absenteeism. So the big component is the negative effect on the victims, not only the victims, but the people around them. As soon when something offensive has happened, even if you don't quit, you withdraw. You avoid the harasser. You, go, you enter into all kinds of um, ways of protecting yourself and enduring this. And does the employer care? Probably not, but the employer does care if you're not doing your job well. And that should be a concern. And so the financial concern is not so much the settlements Uh, either private settlements or public settlements or litigation, that for many large employers, that's just lunch money. Um, But the concern should be job turnover when women, when executive women quit because they're just fed up with putting up with the, 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 the jock atmosphere and the remarks and the comments and the after work events and all of that if they just say i've had it these are women in which this employer has a major investment they've been with them for many years they've paid them a lot of money they have have uh, benefited from the talent and intelligence that these women have brought to their companies and at a certain point these women leave that has to be of concern at some point so i'm really Um, focusing on how we can get the attention of employers to to respond forcefully when these issues come up. And then the next thing we can talk about, which I think others will be talking about, is how do they, managers, the corner office, how does the corner office come to know what's going on in its workplace? Because based on these statistics, you can see how much is going on And the people are not coming to us to file, and we can talk a little bit about the problems and the advantages of filing at EEOC or other state and local agencies. They're not coming to us. What are they going to do about it internally?
0: The Deputy Chief of the Sex Crimes Unit since 2006, and she's going to speak to us about when sexual harassment rises to the level
2: of a crime. Good morning. So, yes, sexual assault in the workplace is not new to us at the District Attorney's Office, right? It's we've seen it for as long as I've been there, and long before I was ever there, but. I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak to all of you if you're representing plaintiffs in sexual harassment cases or if you're representing employers who receive a complaint of sexual harassment, sort of when does that, when do you think this might involve the criminal justice system as well? Perhaps there's, there are um, other, you know, consequences for this offender. So sexual assault in the workplace, it could be as, um, once people have their hands on each other you might be looking at a sexual assault. Our misdemeanor sexual assaults in New York State include sexual abuse in the third degree and forcible touching. And sexual abuse is simply the touching of the intimate parts of another person, it could be over or under the clothing, it could be touching of the victim by the actor or the actor by the victim, and it's without consent. So when someone is, you know, in the workplace smacking someone on the buttocks or grinding up against them, that's a sexual assault, and that could be a criminal case. We also have a forcible touching misdemeanor, which is grabbing, squeezing, touching the intimate parts of another, and it's not only for the purpose of sexual gratification, but it could be for no legitimate purpose. It could be for the purpose of degrading another. So again, if you have, you know, sort of the degrading butt slap, Um, and everyone's joking about it, that might be a crime and that might be a time when you want to consider calling the authorities. Our more, you know, our felony sexual assaults essentially in New York State all consist of two parts. They have a sexual, what is the sexual act and what is our legal theory of lack of consent. So all of our felony sexual assaults are primarily going to be defined as either a rape, a criminal sexual act or a sexual abuse in the first degree. Rape in New York State is defined only as penetration of the vagina by the penis, however slight. Um, Criminal Sexual Act is defined as other sexual conduct, contact between the mouth and the vulva or vagina or penis or anus, the penis and the anus. Um, Rape and Criminal Sexual Act, although they have different titles under our state law, are treated the same, so their sentencing possibilities are the same. The registration under Megan's law is the same, but they have different titles. Um, And sexual abuse, again, is everything else. Other touching of the intimate parts of a person by the actor or of the actor over or under the clothing. These Rape Criminal Sexual Act or sexual abuse, the level of felony, whether it's a first degree, second degree, or third degree, is going to depend on What is our legal theory of lack of consent? So in New York State, we have a number of specifically defined theories of lack of consent. Our first degree crimes involve forcible compulsion, where the person uses actual physical force or a threat of implied physical force or harm, Um, and a case where a victim is physically helpless. If a victim is asleep or unconscious at the time of the sex act, that's a first degree sexual assault. You know, these things do happen in offices from time to time. We do see it. Um, Our second-degree theories include sexual assault of a person while they're mentally incapacitated. So that's a person who's temporarily unable to apprise the nature of their conduct. Due to an intoxicant, this is something that's given to them without their consent. So this is the person who's drugged or roofied without their knowledge. Um, they could be walking, talking, engaging in the sex act, but they wouldn't have done it but for the intoxicant that was given to them involuntarily. Other sexual ass- second-degree sexual assault involves sexual assault of the mentally disabled. Um, you might not see that in this forum too often, but it's a person who has a permanent disability that makes them unable to appraise the nature of their conduct. And then our third-degree rape and criminal sexual act crimes include... Crimes where a victim clearly expresses a lack of consent, clearly expresses no, and a reasonable person under all of the circumstances would have understood that to be a lack of consent. So when you're met with any of these fact patterns, these are times where you might want to call law enforcement. Some other non-sexual assault, but sexual harassment that you might see that's also criminal, involves revenge porn, what you just described. You know, the unlawful dissemination of an intimate image, even if the image was taken consensually, if it's then disseminated unlawfully to others to harm that victim, either socially, economically, mentally, that's a crime in New York City. It's not yet a crime in New York State, but for any of us working in the city, uh, as of November of 2017, our city council passed a law. So, you know, the dissemination of revenge porn is unlawful. It happens between employees, employers, between employees. It's also something that you might see as an employer um, directed at one of your employees by an outside person. So it's not an uncommon scenario to see, you know, a scorned lover sending intimate images to an employer to try to get the person fi- to try to get the victim fired or to embarrass the victim, um, which is an uncomfortable thing to receive, obviously. But as the employer, to protect your you know, employee who's now a crime victim, you want to try to preserve the image, preserve the data that came with it so we can prove who sent it. Um, so that's something you see. And then unlawful surveillance. This is the unlawful um, taking of an image of a person's intimate parts, or unlawfully installing a camera in a bathroom, in a changing room, and taking images when a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy. It's an e-felony in New York State, and it happens. It happens in places of employment. We see it in, you know, restaurants and hotels where the employees have to change as part of their job, like these secret cameras. I've even seen it in a in a law office so it happens and if you find that in your place of employment you know you want to call the police so what the, what's the process if someone reports to you that they've been the victim of sexual assault at the place of, where you work and you're the employer or if someone's reporting to you and you're a plaintiff's attorney you want to think about what, Well, what, are, what is this person's options? Where can he or she go besides just the civil litigation route? And so you can call the New York City Police Department or if you have a person who's been the victim of one of these sexual assaults in Manhattan, you can call the district attorney's office directly. We have a sexual assault hotline which is really like a lukewarm line because we answer Monday through Friday nine to five, <laughs> and then and that's when we call back. Um, so it's not good for emergencies. But we ha- we do take reports of sexual assault directly, especially historic reports where there's not immediate evidence to collect. Um, we'll take reports and have the victim come in and interview them in person, and the number is printed in your in your handouts. Um, what happens when someone reports, they're interviewed by if they go through the police department, they're interviewed first by a detective from the Manhattan Special Victims Squad, sometimes by a precinct detective or officer. And then they're interviewed again by an assistant district attorney who's going to ask all about what happened, um, the offense, questions geared toward what other evidence might we have out there that will corroborate this victim? Are there other witnesses to the event? Are there people who did not witness it, but are what we call outcry witnesses, people that the witness um, confided in? As you know, delayed report is common, but sometimes you find a friend or a coworker that is a witness because the, the victim felt secure enough to talk to them early on. So we'll do an interview. Um, if we have enough evidence to bring charges, the defendant will be arrested. The misdemeanors that I talked about, forcible touching, um, sexual abuse in the third degree, those proceed in criminal court. The other cases are felonies and would move on to Supreme Court. For a victim who's part of the process, if a case is moving to Supreme Court, they have to testify before a grand jury. Which is a secret proceeding. Um, Sixteen to twenty-three grand jurors sit and listen to evidence and decide if we have enough to proceed with felony charges. And then ultimately, you know, if a case proceeds, whether it's in criminal court or Supreme Court, there's the possibility that the victim will have to testify at a trial. Um, in Criminal court, there are six jurors, in Supreme Court there are 12, and it's our burden of proof to prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt um, and to have a unanimous verdict. I'd say the vast majority of cases don't go to trial. Many end up pleading guilty, um, but probably 10 to 15% do go to trial. Um, while the case is pending, the victims can get an order of protection against, to protect them from their offender during the pendency of the case, and then upon conviction can have a final order of protection that lasts for a certain period of time, depending on you know, the, whether the conviction is for a felony or a misdemeanor. A uh, few other things to note, I guess, that are, you know, the victim is, people always use the term pressing charges, In reality, the victim is a witness, so it's the district attorney's office that chooses whether or not to press charges. Um, We have to decide if we have enough evidence to actually charge a crime, do we have probable cause to charge a crime, and um, can we prove the crime, but we don't generally force people to go forward. So if you have someone that wants to know, should I? Um, enter the criminal justice process, perhaps this is a crime, Um, I might want to press charges but I'm not sure, they can in Manhattan certainly meet with the detectives and or meet with the DA's office and tell us what happened and be heard and have an opportunity to decide whether or not they want to move forward with the case. We don't force people to move forward in a sexual assault case um, because obviously, the traumatic nature of of what's happened. And, you know, it's a heavy burden on the victim to have to go through the process. We do have a witness aid unit at our office. So we have counseling available for crime victims, whether or not they end up going forward with the case. Um, And we have other social services available for the victims. Um, That's pretty much it. we're not fortunate
0: joined by Councilmember Keith Powers. Councilmember Powers represents the fourth district in New York City, which covers the east side of Manhattan and Midtown, and he also serves as the chair of the Council's Criminal Justice Committee. Um, Throughout his career, he's drafted and worked on legislation to create an equal rights amendment in the New York State Constitution to prevent discrimination based on gender, I have to turn that on, sorry, um, and institute a no-fault divorce in New York State, so those of us who practice matrimonial owe him a great debt. Um, his first bill was signed into, law, signed into law this year, expanded sexual harassment protections under the New York City Human Rights Law to all employee, employees in New York City, and he's here to talk to us about this law today. Um, Council Member Powers. Thank you. I
3: should note we are in the 4th Council District right now, so thank you for hosting it uh, and being here. Um, I actually took office on January 1st to represent this neighborhood, 14th Street up to 98th Street, and as far as west as Columbus Circle, and I'll just tell a quick story. The in the period between when I won my election in November and then when I took office in January 1st, I was starting to accumulate these ideas about what I wanted to do, what I wanted to work on, and a friend of mine who practiced practices uh, uh employment law in New York City was also my treasurer uh had noted to me as we were talking about what was going on in this country right now around the me too movement that New York City's uh, human rights law didn't cover employees under in businesses under 4 uh employees. And uh I know I think your report actually made well that was actually a legislative recommendation from the report. I won't steal your thunder here, but um, that was that was one of the legislative recommendations was to cover all employees uh below uh businesses that were below four employees. And I think, in, and your report notes this, that there, I think that they had been doing a pretty good job of finding ways to cover businesses, even if at the time of when the, uh, when the uh, I think, to, to cover whether they had, uh, you know, interns or other contractors, or at one point in time they had more than four employees, to be pretty liberal in terms of how we in- interpreted and enforced it. But there are a number of categories of businesses that would not be covered because they either never went over four employees. Or they were domestic workers or independent contractors or other types of businesses that may never exceed that threshold. So I'll just tell a story. On January 1st, it's the first, literally at midnight, that ball drops. I'm a city council member all of a sudden. And, um, I can, they, and sometime after that, they, I can start introducing bills. You, you literally go online, you put in what, what you, the idea, what you want to do, and you have bill drafters and the lawyers of the council start working on it. So, I, that, this was I, in a conversation with my, uh, my treasurer, he, and, and noting that, I, I said, that seems incredible that the state had actually closed that and actually a couple years ago in 2015 had moved the threshold for for the the state law from four employees down to employees of businesses of any size. And New York City, which I think prides itself on having strong and progressive laws, had not done the same. And and so that was some point on January 1st I, I went on and that was the first bill I introduced and it was the first law I got passed. And it's really, I think, in some ways, a tale about lawmaking, which is that even when you look at the different laws in the city and the state and you realize they don't match each other and that even New York City which has this has a I think a, a, a very good human rights law one of the best in the maybe the best in the country the best in the country um, uh, uh, that we sometimes miss these these laws that we should really be on the books or we or we don't pass them and so during the moment when um, I think all legislatures and businesses in the, in the, in the country were, just, were starting to address, uh, cultural and, and legal problems around sexual harassment. The city council moved forward with ten bills that would strengthen both our own city government's, um, uh, pr- procedures and policies and laws around sexual harassment in the workplace and also for private employers as well. And I was I was proud to carry one of those bills, but it really is a story about um, both the ability for people, especially in the legal profession, to be able to be part of the conversation around how to make laws in New York City and hopefully in other parts of the country as well. But um but also how timing really impacts lawmaking and how we we, you know we, we this was the first big package of bills that we passed in the city because of I think the the need to address it and the and the timing of it. Um, what I will say, there's a call to, it is a call to action, so I'll start with the call to action, which is with, we, we passed 10 bills we, and then it became law. It certainly shouldn't cease there. I'm sure that people in this room have observed or have in their own minds um, more laws that we can pass and more ways that we can improve employment practices and other laws in this city. And certainly I would look to, and I think many of my colleagues will look to you, to be helpful in the process of how we improve our own laws and uh, even our own in- internal policies, in the city, um, so the, you know it was really it was really uh, just a lawyer that was a friend of mine who brought that to us and really got you know it was became a moment. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a number of bills that I'll just I'll just kind of I think some folks have this, but in addition to the bill the law I should say that I introduced um, around you know reducing the threshold from four employees down to one. I think the one that got the most attention. I know the New York Times covered this was a new mandate around what. private, employers in New York City, over 15 employees or more have to do in terms of their own training. And I know that some some big. I met with a number of big employers who over big over 15 employees um, in the city who had some had already policies on the book and were looking to help clarify how their policies would match what we were mandating in the in the law. But we also found that many didn't or many didn't have a, uh, you know their own internal policies around training and 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 it, it's 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 scary. And I know that many started to address it in the wake of what was going on in the country. But it was it was. It was sometimes scary to see how many left it uh, wide open in terms of or left it to the discretion of particular individuals in their company to how those how they would do education and training and certainly how they would do reporting and how they would deal with a complaint from somebody who works there. and so I think in, as the country started to move over the last year, certainly businesses too, but did too. but the law now in the books on New York City. Uh, that the mayor signed a few weeks ago would create a requirement around fifteen employees or more, and I think we, I think there will probably be a process by which we just you know enforcement happens how you define the fifteen employees um, and and more of that conversation between us and those who are doing the work uh, after we hand off the law who has to do the enforcement in terms of how that will be you know, fully implemented um, the other ones um, a lot more about training and education more a lot more about disclosure in the workplace so that Employees have more information Um, because I think what we recognize in the city and in the state is that there are a lot of employees who did, and I think some of you touched on this, who experienced something but either didn't know whether it uh, how to report it or who to go to in their own business or felt particularly you know, questioning in their own mind what the impact would be on their own employment or their own status within their own company. I think if there's one success of the Me Too move, there's many, but if there's one very large one, it's making sure that people know that they can come forward, that there will be a receptive audience within their own employer uh, and in the public, and that they should not feel like they don't know even where to go in their own company or what to do. So a lot of the laws also dealt with disclosure and uh, within their own company and more education and training. Um, and I will say, somebody in the prior panel said about big companies being the standard bearer when it comes to practices, um, I-, I disagree with that only in one place, which is that Government really has to be the standard bearer, and that we are a major employer in the entire country, in the city, in the state, and that we have found. I, I, I will. I will do the criticism right here. I think in city agencies, including the city council and other agencies throughout the city that employ thousands of people, it's unclear even what the depth of the problem is. How many, how many people have actually come forward and said something happened to me? There's been some stories about this that in in both the city and the state a lack of clarity around um what what the depth of the problem is and what are the proper reporting mechanisms and making sure that there's actually appropriate staffing and resources put forward to this so we also passed a number of laws that impact the own the city we also passed our own rules in the city council that reflect everything that we pass laws on but we have to do just a, a Clearly, a better job in the city as an employer ourselves in making sure that we have that we are really the gold the gold um, standard. So, um, as of just a few weeks ago, those ten bills became law. The mayor signed them into law, and so we have some progress on that. But my really call to action, if there is one, is to don't let us become politicians who pass the laws and move on from a subject matter. That is, We do that, I think, far too often as we get our press release and we walk away. Um, I think and my my recommendation to my own colleagues is that we should have some annual review, either at the committee level or internally, of how our laws are performing and how we can do better in terms of all forms of discrimination, including sexual harassment. So um, you being the lawyers in the room can certainly help us with that in terms of how we can continue to make sure that we have, uh, that's the, that is my call to actually, is to make sure that we are continuing to do reviews. We don't walk away from something after the moment flees or after we get a certain amount of press you know, credit and get a bill passed. Um, so um, we have always more work to do, and a lot of it's about changing internal behavior of individuals who are bad actors, but certainly can create cultures and create laws that guide us towards that. So um, that's, if there is a call to action, that's mine. And um, and certainly I appreciate the work that everybody on this stage is doing, and it, it is a testament to... Um, the work that people are doing. I, know I'm handing, I think I'm handing it off to you next. But um, the report that that is adjacent to me really did call for legislative action. So this is a. It's on the website too. Um, it, It is, it is a, we do, we do listen. I mean, we actually, I know people feel politicians don't listen. At least in the city council, I can tell you, when you bring good ideas forward, they tend to make themselves into uh, legislative form one way or the other. um, And we tend to like to look for ways to make the city better and safer for people. So um, that is a, uh, my, my takeaway for you is that um, we certainly are always looking for, to be part of the conversation around uh, ways to improve the practices. I think I queued you out there. Thank you. Thank you. Um,
0: have the note cards gone out? Do we know? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so, they're going out. The note cards for questions are going out, and they'll be collected. And um, after we hear from Ms. Fitch, we'll answer as many questions as we can. Okay. Um, so, finally, we're joined by Hollis Fitch. She is the deputy commissioner of the Law Enforcement Bureau of the New York City Commission on Human Rights. You must have a very large um, business card. Um, before the commission, she was staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society's Employment Law Unit. She's currently a member of the Civil Rights Committee of the New York City Bar, and she occasionally is an adjunct professor,
4: excuse me, professor, at the New at CUNY School of Law. Ms. Fitch? thanks, Chris. Thank you. Um, So at the commission, we have jurisdiction, we enforce the New York City Human Rights Law, which is, I believe, the best civil rights law in the country, especially now with our very active city council. Um, And we have jurisdiction over discrimination in employment, housing, public accommodations, discriminatory harassment, Chris's area, and also over bias-based profiling by law enforcement. Obviously going to focus on employment today, and under the City Human Rights Law, we have many... um, both of the traditional protected categories under the state and federal discrimination laws, and then a number of unique protected categories that are special to the city. in, at the city commission people can bring members of the public can file complaints with us complaints of discrimination most of the people coming to the agency are not represented by counsel but since you are lawyers in the room we do uh, it is a new uh, provision of the city human rights law that attorneys fees are available for people bringing cases to the commission and we have an instituted an online email based um, attorney filed complaint process which you can read about on our website so just for some of the basics um, we 're trying to be accessible, and we have now around thirty percent of uh, complainants coming to the commission in the employment context are filed are uh, represented by attorneys, which is very helpful to us in the investigation process. Um, We also have affirmative investigations, which we call commission-initiated, our commission-initiated investigations. And this has been particularly helpful, while similar to what Elector was talking about with the EOC, we have not seen a huge spike in people coming to the commission in the Me Too movement. We've seen a steady gender-based discrimination and gender-based harassment claims are a kind of constant stream at the city commission. Um, One of the things that we've seen in the past few months are what I've been calling proxy claims where people are coming to us on behalf of others, either friends or co-workers, um, to report things to us on behalf of people who are too afraid to report it themselves. And at the City Commission, we can initiate our own investigations based on that kind of information. So if you are running into especially a serial harasser situation that seems to be ongoing that you are aware of but that no one is complaining about. Um, We have both an online inquiry form on our website and then also we're very accessible. You can reach out and we really just need the name of the employer and a little piece of information and we are going to start poking around. And we've been doing that um, in particular in the sexual harassment context because we have been getting a lot of what we call tips about employers who are not adequately responding and ongoing harassment situations where people are too afraid to come forward. Um, as has been mentioned, we have a report that came out. We held public hearing a public hearing in the fall, and this is the resulting report. I'm going to briefly highlight some of the ways in which the city human rights law is particularly uh, distinctive in this area. And I think that the example that Chris gave helps kind of, kind of point out some of the ways in which the city human rights law is a really powerful tool in this context. But that those things are also laid out in the report and highlighted there. Um, one of the first, the definition of gender under the city human rights law is very broad. And so at the city commission and under the city human rights law, when we're talking about sexual harassment, we're really talking about gender-based harassment. And the, and the new law that the city council just passed also refers to gender-based harassment. And that means that it encompasses a somewhat wider swath of what is really being talked about in the Me Too movement, the sort of sexualized harassment, but under the city human rights law, it's actionable as gender-based harassment. That can encompass uh, the the defini- definition of gender includes gender identity, gender expression. And so just in terms of just the very... Um, basic concept of what is gender-based harassment or sexual harassment under the City Human Rights Law. Human Rights Law, it's about the broadest that you can imagine anything that implicates someone's gender, gender identity, gender expression. Um, the other basic piece is that there's not a, under the federal law, you ha- harassment has to rise to the level or, of severe or pervasive in order to be actionable. And that is not the case under the City Human Rights Law. The example that Chris gave of the um, showing the pornographic image or the possible revenge porn um, at the workplace, even if that's just one incident, one moment of harassment could be actionable under the city human rights law, the standard is really the same as in the discrimination context. Was the person treated less well than someone else because of their, because of or in part because of their protected uh, Category. It can also be a dual motivation. It doesn't have to be solely limited to the person's gender or other protected category. Um, the city human rights law standard is the harassment has to be more than petty slights and trivial inconveniences. So the the gap between severe or pervasive under the federal law and more than a petty slight pretty much encompasses uh, a lot more of the kind of conduct that it, it, that we need to be capturing under the law in order to really stamp out some of the more extreme examples that we're seeing reported in the media. Um, The city human rights law, so in the the example, I forget, Chris, was it a coworker or a supervisor? A supervisor. supervisor. So under the city human rights law, individuals are liable for acts of harassment or acts of discrimination, which is also unique. especially as compared to, to federal law. Um, and employers are strictly liable for, for supervisors' or managers' actions. So if this because this is a supervisor, doesn't matter if this is a one-time thing, the employer had no idea the supervisor would hap, do something like this, the employer could be liable. Um, if it had been a co-worker, the standard is slightly different. Um, an employer could be, the co-worker himself could be liable as an individual, and then the employer would be liable under the City Human Rights Law if he knew and acquiesced or failed to take immediate and appropriate corrective action or should have known and failed to exercise reasonable diligence to prevent. And so those the in most instances there's some kind of inkling that the employer should have known that the person was a problem and likely there will be liability for the for a co-worker's actions. Um, employers are also liable for independent contractors' actions under the city human rights law. Um, if the Harassment was committed in the course of employment that furthered the employer's business. And similar to the coworker situation, the employer had actual knowledge and acquiesced in the conduct. Um. The city human rights law covers has a now particularly broad coverage for gender-based harassment, reaching all employers regardless of size. Um, but we also cover the, the law also covers interns and independent contractors, not just employees, so an independent contractor who is not themselves an employer, if sexually harassed or discriminated against in the context of that contracting relationship, they would have a claim under the city human rights law against the person, the employer, the contractor, um, just as if they were an employee. And so we don't have to get into the independent contractor versus employee test in most circumstances, as long as an independent contractor is not themselves an employer. So it doesn't also have people working under them. They're going to also have a claim under the city human rights law. Um, The other distinct um, big thing to know about sexual harassment in the city human rights law especially as compared, I'm sorry, pointing to Electra, Electra but <laughs> as the representative of <laughs> Title Seven here um, but under the uh, city human rights law there's no Farragher-Ellerth defense and so those who have litigated under Title Seven will know that if an employer can show that they have a, po- a reporting process and that they're training their employees that that will reduce their liability in the Title Seven context that's not true under the city human rights law so even if an employer has set up a process for people to make complaints and it can show that that's worked and the person um, didn't avail themselves of this process. They'll be liable under the city human rights law regardless, those kinds of factors, whether they're training, whether they have a complaint process, that can go to mitigate civil penalties or to mitigate punitive damages, but not um, the employee's damages of the original liability. Um, Just, I know I wanna make sure we leave time for questions. So I'll just make a couple uh, additional pitches for the commission and the city human rights law. Um, we can investigate inv- uh, discrimination and sexual harassment claims even if an employee has signed an arbitration agreement. So a person can file with us um, in a context when they wouldn't otherwise be able to go to court. Um, the, we can also, another with our commission initiated power, if we see a situation of ongoing harassment and someone does file a complaint with us, Um, We can also, we sometimes pair commission initiated action with a complainant going through our process. When a complainant comes to us and files a complaint, we're in our neutral enforcement investigating um, posture until we investigate and if we establish probable cause, then at that point we're in the prosecutorial phase and we are the advocates, we represent the city, not the person bringing the claim, but in prosecuting the violation. Um, but sometimes a situation at the very beginning presents such an extreme uh, case, or there's needs to be quick intervention. We will, at that point, reach out to the employer immediately, in addition to start the neutral investigative process, and say, "Look, you got to take mitigating measures here." And, to, and we, so we can, in certain situations, get involved very quickly when a situation is extreme. We also do. Um, Oh, in most instances, we do a workplace-wide investigation. So even if an employee, one employee is coming to us, it seems to be an individual situation. If there's any indication that other people might be affected, or there doesn't seem to be an appropriate policy or protection in place, we're going to look at the employer's policies overall. Um, so as an attorney, bringing an individual case. You may suspect there's a class. You may not be able to establish the class. Coming to the commission is a good opportunity to, for us to be able to see whether other people are affected and bring a bigger impact on the employer than you might with bringing one individual claim. Um, as far as res, uh, remedies, there's traditional remedies. We don't have any cap on damages. There's. Uh, There's civil penalties for for people bringing claims to the commission. We can seek civil penalties up to $250,000 per violation for a willful violation. 125,000 for a non-willful violation, we usually are looking for the Commission's interest in resolving a case for affirmative relief, policy changes, training, putting in a, making sure that there is a place to, an anonymous place to report to, that there is a real reporting mechanism, that there is an anti-retaliation policy in place. Um, And then, in particular, we are often investigating and bringing and prosecuting claims against smaller employers. And at that point, we're really wanting to work with them to build, not to levy a civil, a heavy civil penalty, but instead to help them get policies in place, make sure that we're not going to see them before the commission again. And we have free training available at the commission for people who need, who may have a lawyer, but need to go through an anti-discrimination training in order to put in place a good policy as an employer. Um, we also seek for small employers in particular, or individual employers, we're looking more at restorative justice type remedies, where people do community service instead of pay a civil penalty and work on developing the proper policies in their place of work. And we also have a mediation program. And I will stop there, so we can take some questions. Do we have any note cards?
0: Thanks, Hollis. Okay, so um, an audience member asks, how can we address issues faced by freelancers, independent contractors, or others without a traditional employee-employer relationship, particularly regarding retaliation? And how can we address diversity, um, inclusion, as a way to um, address harassment?
4: Alice, I think you can answer this. Yeah, I'll, I'll just speak to the independent contractor um, as mentioned, the in, an independent contractor could have, could have a claim under the city human rights law if they don't have their own employees. So I think that will scoop in mo- many situations, not all. Um, but uh, independent contractors are both counted for getting to the four-employee count, which I'm still used to doing, um, and uh, could have a claim under the city human rights law for harassment.
0: Okay, here's a good, solid starter question. Um, what are the advantages or disadvantages of where to file? Huh. Um, and can a court action be filed without first filing with an agency? Oh,
1: can a, I'm sorry, what was, what was the second
0: question? Sure. So, is there, a, a, this is kind of a comparison between the federal, state, and city level. Um, the advantages or disadvantages of where to file for f- whether federal, state, or city level. Um, and with- within the context of the federal or the state or the city, can a court action be filed without first filing with the agency? Oh,
1: okay. um, well, speaking for e- EEOC, I'll do the best. To- I realize I'm the only non-lawyer in the room, and I feel very intimidated, but that's sort of the story of my life, so I'll keep trying. Uh, you can file with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, our uh, numerical minimum is 15. Um, you can file online, you can file by walking in, you can file by writing in. Um, we The uh, charge has a certain format and uh, we have investigators who will interview people Uh, who who come to our offices uh, by appointment or as walk-ins, and they'll be very thoroughly interviewed. The process is that the charge is then docketed, given a number. It's served upon the employer. Um, It may be that it's directed to mediation. We have a very active mediation function. Uh, Sexual harassment charges would probably not be... I'm trying to think of an instance where they would be uh, directed to mediation. It certainly isn't advisable. Um, And so they are then uh, served, and we ask the employer to – we require the employer to provide a position statement within a limited period of time with a um, two-week extension if requested. And at that point, the investigator assigned looks to see where we are with it. so an advantage of filing with EEOC, as with the City Commission, is that you do not have to be represented. Um, and uh, we feel that that's an advantage to come to us because you can get the person can get started with it without making a commitment to an attorney and without the attorney making a commitment to the individual. Um, on the other hand, um, with, if you have a private attorney, you have a lot of options as to where you're going to go, whereas with us, we do have our definition of what is sexual harassment, severe or pervasive, um, certainly comes up. And we do have to evaluate if it's only a sexual harassment charge, whether it is going to meet one or the other of these standards. We do have a lot of charges that would arguably be, uh, suggest a pervasive atmosphere, and it The drama may not be so great, but the pain may be because the pervasive atmosphere means that it's a sexualized atmosphere, that there is sex talk, sex images, uh, sex threats and so forth that individually might not rise to the level of being severe, but when there are enough of them, enough of the time, then you can certainly make an argument that it's pervasive. And uh, so that helps a person who may not even be the individual victim of the harassment, but is working in an atmosphere where this is going on all the time or where there may be other direct victims and can come in and charge a, uh, a, perv- a, sexu- a, a pervasive um, atmosphere of uh, sexual discrimination. Um, we also, um, the ad- one advantage I think of coming to a public agency where their cost is not an issue, um, can and do look into class issues. Um, my uh, unsupported conclusion is that there's no such thing as a single act of sexual harassment. It's only the latest one uh, that the person is bringing to us. The harasser has done this before and will do it again if there, if not stopped. And uh, so one advantage of being a law enforcement agency is that we can gather a very large amount of information. Uh, and it must be supplied to us, and we can find out whether there are victims of previous acts of harassment by the same harasser or by others, and including going back a considerable period of time and, uh, and uh, interviewing, as we very often do, former employees. We get the names of former employees and reach out to them and interview them. So we're in position to assemble quite a large class if it's a serious issue, and as I said, it doesn't have to be the same harasser. We also do look at, and I think it's an important feature when we talk about training and remedy, we do look at the policies of the organization as to how they handle instances of uh, discrimination and in particular sexual harassment. Some of the policies are extremely weak. They all say, we have zero tolerance. What does zero tolerance mean? I have no idea. Um, And they don't specify, and very frequently, and in our view, dangerously suggests that if you feel you're being sexually harassed, speak to your supervisor. Um, our view, and, uh, based on looking at a lot of cases and investigating a lot of cases, is that your supervisor may not be the best person to handle this situation, even if he or she is not the harasser, which of course is very often the case. Um, so the um, the obligation, the, the uh Uh, the the right to handle the situation is given to people who are not trained in this issue. There is no consistent policy as to how you would go about examining such a claim, and there is certainly no consistent policy as to what should be done uh, if if the sexual harassment is is supported, which it rarely is when it's the supervisor who's who's, uh, uh, investigating it. When we do training, when we do remedial programs, we always insist that the, um, uh, that the obligation to investigate should be at some centralized point, HR, EEO, or something, somebody who's trained, somebody who has the um, authority to carry out a thorough investigation. And when there is a penalty called for, the organization can um, impose penalties even-handedly regardless of who the offender is. And I think that we've all seen in the press, if no place else, that the higher the level of offender, the lesser, in many instances, the level of the penalty. It's very I'm hard to figure s- I'm out. I'm sorry to
0: interrupt, but we have so short time. Sorry, um, okay. So that's okay. I'll stop. Can, I just want to take a couple more questions. Um, somebody asked can someone file a claim with the EEOC and the Commission on Human Rights at the same time?
4: Actually, we'll grab that and sort of answer the previous question also on going to court and filing at the agencies, because I think there is actually an important distinction between Title VII and the city human rights law and state human rights law that we should, um, in relation to going to court. So, the Title Seven is an exhaustion of remedy statute, which means that you have to go to the EEOC before you go to court in order to bring your claim, and you have to go through the, the agency. They get to take a look at it, then they issue a right to sue if they decide not to proceed on it. Um, the commission, the city commission, and under the city human rights law and the state human rights law is the same is an election of remedies statute. So that means that you can either, for this, to bring your city claim, you can either go to court or go to the city commission, um, and you can't do both. And you don't once you go to the city commission and there's a determination on the merits, you you don't get a second shot by bringing your claim in court in the way you do under federal law, your appeal rights are limited to a substantial evidence review of the agency's determination, ultimate final determination. Um, so, so that, I think, answers both, I hope, the last two procedural questions.
0: Okay. Um, here is a question for um, Jennifer Gaffney. Um, can victims who experience sexual harassment in a borough other than
2: Manhattan still call the hotline? Um, if some, if they call our hotline, we're going to refer them to the appropriate borough. But I'll tell you that the NYPD hotline will take, um, they take calls for all five boroughs. And something I, I should have mentioned before is that if you call our hotline, we will speak to anybody. We're not looking at the statute of limitations. We're gathering evidence or and gathering information. So we'll speak to anyone that has a an incident that occurs in Manhattan. And the NYPD has a policy now of taking a report of sexual assault, again, in any of the five boroughs, regardless of statute of limitations. So if someone makes a report, they'll hear from that person. I think it's... You'll have to Google it. I think it's 267, rape, which is a terrible hotline number, but is that right, 267? Thank you. Um, Another
0: question for Hollis Fitch. Does the New York City um, human rights law cover harassment um, by outside vendors
4: like UPS or a delivery person? So um,
1: possibly.
4: (laughs) <laughs> we would need a lot more facts to know. What you'd want to look for there is knowledge on, you'd still, you, you could be in the discriminatory harassment world. Um, so under the city human rights law, there's an a, a cause of action for discriminatory harassment outside of the context of employment, public accommodations, against an individual who has taken, um, who is Threatening force or using force in order to interfere with someone's protected rights because of their um, protected category. So a sexual harassment, a particularly extreme sexual harassment um, attack could fit that, could easily fit that parameter. Um, and you would have a cause of action against the vendor. Um, even if that person is not an agent of the employer and that's outside of the employment context. In the employment context, if you were looking to bring a, a, uh, an action against the employer because of the actions of a vendor, you would look for knowledge and a failure to in, failure to act, but then you'd you, you wouldn't be you would also then want to be able to show that that employer had taken action to protect employees on other in, in other ways, and had it wouldn't be that hard if they were taking any kind of action against um, vendors who threatened workers for other reasons, you, and then they failed to act when a vendor was sexually harassing, you would have a gender-based harassment claim against that employer. So you, you're gonna have a somewhat heightened comparator analysis that you wanna look for, but you could have a, a cause of action against the employer In that context, as well, and and I
3: I would just note that one of the laws we passed in the city does actually uh... affect contractors and subcontractors in the city it's around more about education and training and providing practices um, and i don't believe there's a dollar sometimes we do these laws about contractors and it's based on the dollar amount of the contract and how big. i don't think there's a dollar amount on it so that would affect on the government side those who are doing business with the city i understand i think the question is if you work in a workplace um, it's something we have actually thought I, i've actually thought about is the interactions you have that may not be directly with your, in, you know, your employer, but vendors or those who may be in your workplace even though they're not directly employed. And I think it's something we may look at sometime in the future.
0: And with that, we are officially over our time by several minutes. Um, I'm sorry for people whose questions we didn't get to. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. It was a great panel. Thank you.